It's a privilege, Kevin, you put this up for yourself, not for me. I have the gift for going under low objects. So. It is a privilege for me to stand in this pulpit this morning. I am honored to give Dr. McWhite a, a Sunday off, a well-deserved Sunday off, and it is a privilege. And as I sat there singing or stood there singing, Kevin and I had a conversation in the hallway on earlier this week about, he asked what I would be preaching about today, and I gave him a summary of it, and it's hopefully going to be obvious that the Holy Spirit guided both of us to what we uh, are focusing on today. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. You know, one of the challenges of the Sunday after Christmas is you don't know whether to preach about Christmas or preach about the new year. And so I, I decided the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> so the passage that we have today is going to be taken from Luke 2, verses 21 to 38, the, the days that I uh, dug one time toward the days after Christmas. Verse 21, And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said of the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem." 
One of the special gifts that Lynn has brought into our marriage over the years has been a special knack for decorating our home at Christmas. In fact, I would say that our home looks like a living Christmas card when she gets through decorating each year. Not only does she create an environment that's warm and cozy that just begs to have the gas logs turned on, but it's apparent to anyone who comes into our home that Jesus is the main focus of Christmas in the long household. So from the Friday after Thanksgiving until Christmas Day, we have that environment to celebrate Christmas in. But I know from 46 years of marriage as of tomorrow that the day after Christmas, all of those decorations are going to go into a box, they're going to go into crates, and they're going to be stored neatly in our garage to stay there for 11 months until next Friday after Thanksgiving. Now, as I reflected on that this week, it dawned on me that there are a lot of people in our culture do the very or try to do the very same thing with Christmas in general. They bring Christmas out of the box at the 1st of December, celebrate, go through the sounds and sights of Christmas. They warm up to the warm fuzzies of the neat little story about baby Jesus being born to a poor uh, Jewish couple in Bethlehem, visited by uh, shepherds who had been visited by angels and then later visited by wise men, and they, they warm up to that and get all the warm fuzzies that they can. But then they try to put Christmas back in a box and keep it there for 11 months until the next December 1st comes. But there's a problem with that. The problem with trying to put Christmas into a box is that Christmas won't go into a box. And the reason for that are several. One, Christmas refuses to be put in a box because of who it was lying in that manger. You see, lying in that manger was not just any ordinary Jewish boy. Lying in that manger was wonderful counselor, mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Lying in that manger was the Son of the Most High, the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of God's people, Israel. In that manger lay the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the bright and morning star. In that manger lay the way, the truth, and the life. In that manger lay the Ancient of Days, the light of the world, and the bread of life. The Good Shepherd, the firstborn over all creation, the one who is faithful and true, the Holy One of God. In that manger lay the Lamb of God, the Son of the Most High God, and the Word. In that manger lay Jesus the Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. In that manger lay Jehovah, his salvation, the Savior of the world, our Passover lamb, the Lord, our righteousness, Messiah. 
And incredibly, in that manger lay Emmanuel, God with us, 100% God and eight pounds of 100% human flesh. Number two, Christmas refuses to be put in a box because of what the one lying in that manger grew up to do. The baby in that manger grew up to live a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice that God demanded as payment for sins of the world. That baby grew up to die and redeem mankind from his sin. That baby grew up so that having died for the sins of mankind, he could then rise to the dead to provide eternal life for all who would believe in him. We need to grasp this truth today. What makes it impossible to put Christmas in a box is that that baby grew up and one day Easter happened. It's Jesus' death and burial and resurrection that give Christmas the significance that it had, has. In fact, without Easter, there would be no reason to celebrate Christmas today. That truth was brought home to me in a vivid way a number of years ago. It was about two weeks before Christmas of 2000, I was pastor of First Baptist Church of Landrum up the road. It was a Thursday night, as I recall, and I, it was about midnight, and I was, had gotten out of, into my car at St. Luke's Hospital in Columbus, North Carolina, near Landrum. It was heavy on my mind was the fact that the family I just visited were with a loved one who had been told would not have, probably not lived through the night. On my mind was the fact that earlier that evening I had been in Spartanburg Regional Hospital with a family where the man had been told by his doctors that day, we've done all we can do except make you comfortable till you die. And Mary Black Hospital across Spartanburg was another member of our church at the point of death. And the collective weight of all of that was on my heart as I got in my car and, and drove out the winding driveway from behind the hospital, a driveway decorated for the season of Christmas. And then when I cleared the bottom of that dri driveway, I saw it. What I saw was a huge cross, lighted cross, that every Easter and Christmas is lighted on White Oak Mountain that stands high above Columbus, North Carolina. And it was a much-needed reminder at that moment that it is Easter, it is the death and burial and resurrection that makes Christmas have any meaning at all. And so we can't put Christmas in a box because of who it was lying in that manger, and we can't put Christmas in a box because of who that baby grew up to be and what he grew up to do. But there's a third reason, and that is the fact that as a result of who he was and what he grew up to do, he obligates every person who would ever live to face and make two important life choices. The first life choice that his life and death 
compels us to answer is, who will be or what will be my Savior? Who or what will be my Savior? Now, a more, uh, an important question to ask prior to that is, why do I even need a Savior? In our culture today, that is one of the most important questions that people need to answer. Because most people don't even think or know that they need a Savior. Well, the reason we need a Savior is because every one of us lives in a spiritual predicament. The predicament we live in is the fact that we're all sinners separated from God's love. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To sin means to miss the mark, and so we have missed the mark, the standards of God's righteousness and holy, holiness, which he has set. To sin means that we have missed, fallen short of the glory of God, the glory due him because of his holiness and righteousness. So as a sinner, I place myself under God's judgment and... Romans 6.23 says, as a result, the wages of sin is death. Now, what that means is when I go for my paycheck, for my sin, it brings two forms of death into my life. Physical death in this life and eternal spiritual death separated from God and a place of torment called hell forever and ever after I die. So the reason every person needs a Savior is because every person's a sinner living under the condemnation of the death penalty of sin. And that's our spiritual predicament. Which brings me back to the original question at hand. What or who will be my Savior? Who or what will I choose to believe will rescue me from the penalty of my sin? Who or what will I bet my eternal life on to enable me to go to heaven when I die in spite of the fact that I'm a sinner? Who or what will I put my trust in to be the one to save me from my sin and from the eternal separation from God that it's caused? Who or what will be the one who will give my life meaning and purpose? And as I sat in my office and pondered that question, I realized that basically it breaks down into three options as to what or who I will choose to allow to be my Savior. The first one that I could choose to be my Savior is myself. I can make salvation a do-it-myself project, and that's what a lot of people do. And a lot of people that can be expressed in one of two ways. One, I can express it by saying that I believe that I can be good enough. If I can just be good enough to earn God's favor, I can work my way into heaven. And the reasoning behind that is, is as long as, as there's more good in my life than bad in my life, then God will let me into heaven. That was the idea expressed by a young man I witnessed to one time when I asked him 
why he thought God should let him into heaven. He says, well, as long as I have do more right than wrong in my life, I'll be okay. I said, so in other words, if you have 100 chances to do right or wrong, and you get 51 of them right and 49 of them wrong, you believe you'll go to heaven? He said, yeah. I said, do you realize you're saying it's easier to get into heaven than it is to pass a math test at the local high school? And so some people think, I can be good enough to earn my way to heaven. But there's another way salvation by self is expressed, and that's by those who believe I'm already good enough to go to heaven. Because they set their standard of God letting them into heaven as to whatever level of morality that they're living at that time. There's a problem that we have with trying to earn our way to heaven. And it's based on the fact of what I call the sin cancellation theory. What, what people want to conclude is that if I do a good deed, it cancels out any bad deed that I've done. The problem with that is it doesn't work that way. As soon as I commit a sin, that sin's on the books. It's on my spiritual ledger forever. And so any bad that I do stands side by side with any good that I do, and neither can cancel out the other. So that's why the New Testament in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 concludes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, a second way people answer that question, who will be my, or what will be my Savior, is they answer it by allowing someone else that they appoint to be their Savior. They don't try to say, they, don't, they say it's not up to me, but it's they appoint their baptism or church membership to be their surrogate Savior. They appoint a particular religious system to do that or denominational belief. Some appoint spiritual coattails of a family member, thinking that because my mother, my father, my grandmother, my grandfather were such fine Christians, that somehow I will be swept into heaven alongside them when I die. Some appoint contributions to or volunteer work with charities. And some appoint ignorance, not ignorance, ignorance. That if I just ignore the decision long enough, then it'll somehow take care of itself. Again, as before, as with Savior, the downfall of surrogate, save, self-saving, the downfall of surrogate saviors is that none of them eradicate sin from our lives. None can pay the sin debt that we owe. And so that leaves only one option. And that option, since self can't save, others can't save, only Jesus can save. Let's let the Scripture speak for Him. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, speaking of Jesus, 
He was pierced through for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. Luke 2.11, For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I want you to go back to the passage we read earlier. There are two special people mentioned in that story, Simeon and Anna. I want you to read about Simeon in verse 25, and then read about Anna in verse 37. These two individuals were good to the bone. As fine, godly individuals as you could find in all of Israel. But both of them recognized they still needed a Savior. And so we find both of them, under the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizing that this Baby boy, 40 days old by the time they see him, this baby boy was the salvation that God had promised for hundreds of years through his prophets. And so, in a sense, in the language that we use, they received Jesus to be their Savior, their Messiah. And so I would encourage you today, if you realize you have never received Jesus as your Savior, like Simeon and Anna, please don't let this Christmas get by without you doing so. Well, that's the first question that Jesus' life and death and resurrection calls on us to make. The second one is who or what will be my Lord. Who will call the shots in my life? Who will I allow to be the determining factor in use of my time, my finances, my talents, my spiritual gifts, my moods and my toods, my personal relationship, my thoughts, my possessions, my decisions concerning right and wrong? Again, three options are available. I can allow myself to be my Lord. I can allow something else or someone else to be my Lord. Or I can allow Jesus to be my Lord. Well, I would recommend we take on the mind of Joseph and Mary. We find in verses 21 to 24, and then also in the the verses uh, about Simeon and Anna, that Eight days after Jesus was born, they took him to the temple 
to be circumcised, and they named him Jesus. Circumcision was required by the law of Moses. The name Jesus was the command given by the angel Gabriel when he spoke to them and said, when he's born, you name him Jesus. A pattern of obedience. Then on the 40th day, they had two things that they had to do in the temple. They had to present Jesus to the Lord as the firstborn son in their family. And then she had to go through purification rites for having experienced childbirth as a Jewish woman. Now, why were they so willing to obey the Lord at those points? It goes back to the spirit of lordship that they already possessed. Let me read to you Luke <clears throat> Luke 1.38. When Gabriel turned her life upside down with the news that she would bear a son as a virgin, she said, Behold, I am the bond savior of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. There's no better description I could give you today of what it means to allow Jesus to be Lord. Lordship is the willingness to interrupt anything in your life that interferes with God, what God wants to accomplish in and through you. Lordship is a state of life where one declares no will of his own regarding any situation or circumstance in life. It's a willingness to join God in his work. It's allowing God to be the master potter and making ourselves as available and moldable clay. What does it take to reach the point where you're willing to allow Jesus to be Lord of your life? Total trust in the sovereignty of God. Belief that God will not abuse his power and his authority. Total trust in the character of God. His love, His wisdom, holiness, goodness, kindness, mercy, grace, knowledge, justice, and righteousness. His total trust in the competency of God. His power and ability to accomplish whatever His will desires. His total trust in the Word of God. That it speaks truth to every life situation. It's total trust in the purpose of God and God's desire to use life and all it brings with it to conform me to the image of His Son. Believing God when He says that He will make all things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. It's total trust in the heart of God. Believing that nothing can ever separate me from the love of God. Nothing epitomizes lordship more than the spirit of David Livingston, missionary to Africa in the late 1800s, who once said, Lord, send me anywhere, but go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. 
sever any tie but the tie that binds me to thyself. It's that spirit of surrender that the Lordship becomes real. Earlier, I told about my experience in 2000 at St. Luke's Hospital. Years later, I would do some reflection on that experience, and I penned these thoughts that I'd like to read to you in closing. Jesus being born of a virgin was significant, but in and of itself, Jesus' miraculous birth was not sufficient to divide time into B.C. and A.D. Being heralded by a heavenly host of angels to low on the totem pole of society shepherds was powerful stuff. But even that is not wise enough to cause most stores to close their doors on December 25th. Being visited and gifted by wise men from the east was attention-getting, but even that is not enough to cause many to set aside time each December 24th to attend the Christmas Eve service. No, only Jesus' death on the cross can save mankind from sin and only Jesus' resurrection from the dead to make available eternal life to all who believe in, give adequate reason for there to be a worldwide celebration called Christmas every December 25th. Why is that? Because only Jesus' special life and death and resurrection take death out of dying and put life into living. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we're tempted to put, or at least try to put Christmas back in a box and put it up on a shelf for the next 11 months to live as if Christmas has no lasting meaning. I pray as we come to the time of invitation, if there's anyone in this room who has never received you, as Messiah, as Savior, that they would do so before they leave here today. I pray for those in the room who recognize that we cannot stand beside Mary and declaring that we're your bondservants and you can do, may it be done to us as you say, because we've never surrendered to you as Lord or we've dethroned you. Or what better time and the Sunday before the beginning of a brand new year to make that right. We pray for our time of invitation and just ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to have a moment of invitation now. And this is the time for you to respond. It could be that you recognize that you need to recommit your life to the Lordship of Christ. Obviously, you can do that at your seat, but... The altar is open for you to come and do that here. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to recognize today that you're in the same spiritual boat as the rest of us, a sinner separated from God's love under the condemnation of his judgment and eternal death. You can confess your sin to the Lord today 
you can repent of that sin and turn from thought in your mind that you can save yourself or that anyone else can save you and turn to Christ for that. And by placing your faith in Jesus, surrendering to him as Lord, he will come into your heart and save you two days after Christmas. If I can be of help to you in either of those decisions, I invite you to come as I stand at the front. Let's stand and sing.